right, friends and listeners. Today's episode is another great one. This is with Randy Hetrick. Went from Navy SEAL to $100 million in sales with his business, TRX. Setting out to start his next startup with Outfit. Uh, we'll get into what those businesses do during the episode, but I bet you've seen TRX and the equipment uh, that he and his company build and ship all around the world. I bet you've seen them out and about before. It is such a fascinating conversation, and listeners know that I've wanted to have someone that is that has been a Navy SEAL and then become a, an entrepreneur on the program for a while, because in business, you hear all of these metaphors that people borrow from war for business, and do they apply? So I wanted to ask someone that could actually verify whether they did or not, and there were some surprising answers. So much learned from this episode from such a a brilliant but also uh, simplifying mind that breaks things down in a very well, a very um, digestible way for any founder, any creator, or any aspiring founder or creator to really get a lot out of this episode and out of Randy's insights. So if you dig conversations like these that center on the intersection of creation, psychology, technology, then smash that subscribe button on YouTube, on your favorite podcast player. Like, comment, do it all. It all, I think, contributes to the algorithms. I actually do not know if they do, but, I mean, it's just a few taps. So, do it all. But if you don't want to do any of that, you can also just sit back and relax because we're about to get into a great conversation with Randy Hetrick. This is Below the Line. Randy, thank you for joining me on the podcast. I'm happy to be here with you, James. I love the premise, and uh, hey, let's see if we can make some fellow entrepreneurs uh, feel less lonely. Amen. That is the the order of of the day, every day with this podcast. Where are you right now? It's a beautiful backdrop. I am out in my backyard uh, in Mill Valley, California, which is just uh, across the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco, for any of your listeners that aren't familiar with Northern California. And uh, I like, you know, when the when the weather permits, I like to be out here rather than shut in in my uh, up in up in the tower above the garage, you know, where I where I otherwise toil. That is, uh, man, Northern Cal. That backdrop and the weather there is is some of the best out there. I'm in Southern California after ten years in San Francisco, and San Francisco as a city does not have that that type of weather. But ten minutes outside in Mill Valley, it is completely different it's gorgeous it's amazing right these microclimates that san francisco i mean i lived in i lived up on twin peaks for 10 years and that was a little like living on mount olympus yeah. right a couple days out of out of 10 it would be spectacular and the uh, the other eight were you know you're cloaked in fog with a 40 knot wind and uh so yeah i fled i fled across the bridge to the sun hey amen yeah we, I, we were in noe valley so right there uh close by and we fled yeah, to yeah. We fled to LA uh, like six minutes into COVID with with one kid, another on the way. Just fled down to SoCal for the the warmer weather. No kidding. Where where are you in SoCal? In Santa Monica. So uh, right by. Oh, that's a great spot. Right at the border of Santa Monica, Venice, and yeah, we love it. We love it. Oh uh, yeah, the, yeah, that's a great that's a great spot. Well, you've spent some time in uh, in Southern California, um, quite a bit of time in your career. For listeners, do you mind walking walking folks through your career and and the circuitous path to 
to today founding TRX, but but starting with um, the early days of your career choices. Yeah, well, circuitous is a kind way to put it. Um, <laughs> unexpected for sure. I grew up in Southern California. I grew up in Huntington Beach and Newport Beach, and uh, and then went to to undergrad at USC in LA. And then I went into the SEAL teams, um, which, you know, was, was its its own whole lifetime, if you will. Please tell me um, all about it. Well, I mean, Hey, I I was a SEAL for 14 years. So, so, uh, you know, there's a lot to tell, but uh, it was, it was incredible. It took me all over the world. I lived, you know, I got a chance to live out in, uh, Virginia beach and Washington DC and, obviously deployed, you know, pretty much all over the world, uh, during that time frame, And I, I spent, um, you know, a significant amount of time in Southeast Asia at SEAL team one in Africa. And then, uh, then I went to the special missions unit and that was more global, but spent a lot of time in Europe and Asia and, uh, and some time in South America. So it was, it was a great career. And then, um, then I decided as I was promoting out of the field, that I had really, you know, no grand desire to be a Navy bureaucrat, um, which is necessary, but it just, you know, it just didn't float my boat at the time. And so I, uh, I applied a couple of times actually to Stanford and for business school and ended up, uh, getting in and, and went in, uh, 2001, went to, to got out of the Navy, went to, to, uh, Stanford and struggled my way through business school, at least the first year it was painful. And, and I had created this crazy strap in the teams that, you know, my buddies and I would use when we deploy away from where we had this world-class training facility. And I, uh, you know, I just, while I was at business school, you're thinking about business and I got a chance to be exposed to a bunch of the coaches there who, who seemed to be fascinated with this crazy set of straps, you know, and what those straps did relative to any other available training modality and, you know, encouraged me to pursue it. And so I ended up launching, uh, you know, my little startup that became TRX, um, after I graduated and spent the next, geez, I don't know, what is it? 16, 17 years, uh, building that puppy until, uh, I just, you know, last year, um, I'd been working on another spin out concept, which you see on my outfit, on my hat here, right. outfit, and uh, started apropos of your uh, podcast after, you know, geez, 17 years of a few of as a bootstrap startup guy and then the rest, you know, trying to scale an organization that got bigger and bigger. I found myself, uh, you know, just jonesing to go and do it again. So, so I launched a company, uh, put together a team and launched a company uh, last year uh, called Outfit. And we're building that puppy and growing it. And we can talk about any, any of that that you, that you find interesting. Oh, we are going to dive into, into all of it. The, the first chronologically important question I would have is what is, what is the mindset of someone and I want the below the line, real raw version of what, what was the mindset of someone that wanted to become a, a Navy SEAL and, and walk me, walk me through just the really detailed version of that decision tree. Cause well, I find it so you know, fascinating. I, I think that, I think that every, it's different for every 
for every seal. And I, and I think that, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of the same characteristics apply to, to other, uh, branches of the U S military. I don't think it's exclusive to the seal teams. The, one of the things that makes the seals unique is that it's got such a high attrition rate in selection, right? That's unusual. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's got a very, very difficult selection process and about 85% of the folks that, that even make it, you know, which starts from a much broader, uh, funnel, but of the ones that make it to what's called buds, basic underwater demolition seal training, about 85% of those don't make it through. So that's kind of where the seal teams get their, you know, part of their mystique is that it's so damn hard to get in. And honestly, I, you know, I think guys do it for a lot of different reasons, but probably the most common is certainly applies to me is that, you know, they have this kind of combination of a desire to serve the country. Obviously, if you don't have that, you're probably not, you know, interested in the military, but uh, most guys have something that they want to prove to themselves and who knows, you know, to others and their family, friends, whatever, but, but definitely to themselves. Um, and that's part of what drove me, you know, I just had this big itch that I wanted to try to scratch to figure out sort of what I was made of and whether I had, you know, what I thought I had, um, in terms of, you know, resourcefulness and tenacity and all the stuff that it takes to, to get through that program. So that's what drove me, you know, in that direction. And I frankly chose my, my service. I kind of laugh in retrospect and it seems idiotic, but I chose my branch of service based on which special operations unit had the, had the least chance of letting me in. That was it. What, what kind of psychological backdrop exists to, to make a choice based on that? Apparently a tortured one, yeah. you know, I, uh, I, I, I mean, I, I think I, I think my psychological like backdrop was a long time sort of, uh, I don't know, desire to, you know, prove that I had what it takes. Um, and some of that came from, you know, struggles early in, in life. I was a, I was a young kid always from my grade, uh, and I was a late bloomer. So growing up, you know, I, when I was younger, I really struggled with sports, you know, I mean, I, 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 I'm happy to tell you like the story growing up, my first real sports events were in baseball and I was terrible. I mean, like really horrible. And, and it was, it was very disturbing because I was mentally much more sort of mature than I was physically. So it was, it was a little bit of self torture, right? I, I just couldn't, I couldn't sort of do what, I expected myself to do and what I could see some of the, some of the stars on the team doing. And that was like, you know, really disturbing to me. And I think that, that it just sort of continued. And, you know, I had an old man who, who was super supportive um, of everything I wanted to do, but he was kind of a hard ass. And, and he probably reinforced some of that by, you know, by giving me sort of the, the tough love on uh, he was definitely not an everyone gets a trophy kind of kind of dad so so i think he sort of reinforced some of that that drive to really want to prove like yeah i'm, I'm good enough i'm i'm that good and uh and i just continued well it was such a fascinating story i actually do want to know about what was your what was your childhood like if if you could provide more detail what was your what was your dad like that you would borrow with your family the things that 
that you actually found very useful and helpful? Well, I mean, my parents were great. I mean, but, but very funny polar opposites in their approach. You know, my mom was kind of a, was kind of a, uh, you know, lib peacenik, uh, everybody gets a trophy, always super positive and really was the one who I think kind of convinced me that, you know, anything's possible. Right. Mm -hmm. That was kind of, that was kind of my mom's, um, my mom's jam. And she was always very supportive and accepting and, you know, it's okay that you suck at baseball or whatever, you know, she was, she was good with that as long as I was, uh, happy, which sucking at baseball did not make me. So that was one of the things that we were trying to, you know, figure out, but my dad was, was more of the driver. Right. And I definitely attribute my work ethic to him because he was a dentist, you know, built a practice from scratch and, uh, just was a grinder and had, you know, both of them had me so young, my, you know, they were 18 years old when I popped onto the scene. So, um, I've become, uh, you know, any, any, sort of, uh, I don't know, everybody, everybody gets disillusioned a little bit when you realize your parents are you know, just people, right. And that they, <laughs> and that they're trying to stumble their way through their journey too. And in retrospect, you know, looking back on my parents, like, wow, having a kid at 18 years old, I can't even fathom it. You know, most, most 18 year olds are like at, in the, the epicenter of the narcissistic universe. Right. And right. to, to have to contend with, you know, raising a kid at that age is something that's pretty daunting. And so I, I forgive them any failings that, you know, they may have, uh, that they may have had, um, because they were both great parents, but I attribute a lot of my, my kind of, uh, uh, the characteristics of an entrepreneur, right? Like on, on one hand, the endless optimism that, uh, something great, you know, lies just around the next corner. And then on the other hand, you know, just a grinder's work ethic. And if, if you can, if you can combine those two things, it's a pretty good skill set for, uh, for a lot of stuff, but, but, uh, certainly for, for entrepreneurship. One of the re recent guests on the podcast, Adam Robinson, he built out the Princeton review and he said on the episode, something fascinating. He said that they had done this research on what are the characteristics of the people, the hundreds of thousands of students. I think they did a study with 10,000 of them getting a survey on their backgrounds of the ones that improved the most, not necessarily the ones that scored the, the best, but came into the Princeton Review kind of SAT prep and improved the most. And there were three main findings that they found. First was that um, a parent that was an immigrant and it was ideal for the father um, to, and it was basically, long story short, um, the child learning drive from the father but learning language, because it's such a big part of, of the, uh, the SAT, from the mother, who's the primary caretaker that they're spending the most time with. So a immigrant mother wasn't as, um, I think that could be great for entrepreneurship, but at least for the SAT, it was fascinating. So one parent to learn drive from the, the father, and then the other to have that, um, the, it just worked out survey-wise in the 90s, the mothers as the primary caretakers being... Um, at least a second generation American and, mm. and, and being fluent in, in English. And then the third characteristic was the mentality going into the test that they weren't going to do very well. And so it was just these three things tended to uh, be the three biggest predictors, uh, learning, drive, 
right learning drive than having the the um, love and care of and fluent. Uh, there was something else to do with the mother, but then also um, this. Well, the, it certainly tracks to my kind of just my experience. Right? Was that was the I would say like empathy. You know, I learned from mom sort of tenacity I learned from dad. And did you go into the SEALs, the SEALs training in BUDS thinking I am going to overcome, I am going to make it through? Or did you go in saying, I don't know if I'm going to, but I'm going to give it my best. Nah, it, you know, for me, cause I hadn't been ROTC. I hadn't, you know, I didn't go to the Naval Academy. I mean, I, for me becoming a SEAL was, you know, it was my greatest um, kind of, dream up until that point in my life right and it and it felt to me like it was i think an opportunity to to sort of you know make up for earlier shortcomings right in in on, on the early end of my development as as an athlete where i was frustrated that i wasn't you know didn't have as big a muscles as the stars on the team and um and so you know to me i think that going into the seal teams was putting a puncture you know i'd had a pretty a pretty successful uh, athletic and collegiate or uh, high school and, a, and, a, and collegiate athletic career, but the SEAL teams were going to be the exclamation point right on the mm. end of the sentence. And, um, and so that's, that's kind of how I approached it. And it never even occurred to me that I would quit. Mm. Um, I worried about getting hurt because that's the other way that folks roll back, you know, out of training and in buds is you get hurt. And, and that oftentimes is out of your control. But I never even thought about quitting. I've wanted to have listeners know that I wanted to have a SEAL turned founder on the program for a long time. So we're going to spend a little more time on the on the SEAL side uh, because it's just so foreign to me. It's so fascinating from afar. And and it's something that I just do not have the psychological bearing to say, OK, I'm going to go into the BUDS training for listeners that don't know what why it is so daunting uh, in my head and and um, for those that are slightly familiar with it, do you mind building out what BUDS training and, and that selection process uh, is like just in the long form version? Yeah, I mean, it's long, right? It's, it's a long grind and it, it's hard. It's extended on the front end of that because it's hard to get in to begin with, right? It's a, it's a pretty tough um, there's a lot for obvious reasons. There's a lot of psychological screening, a lot of performance screening that sort of goes on in in the process of getting a slot at the selection course called BUDS. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of people who think how cool it would be to be a Navy SEAL, right? And that's sort of the image that they have. They go watch the movies, which there weren't really any movies back, back in my day. The SEALs were very... Um, below the line, if you will, right? They, they were um, not very well known deliberately and, you know, they got famous later. And um, so anyway, you, you know, you'd, you'd work hard to, to get accepted and, and get a slot to buds. And then once you get there, it really ends up being about a seven month program, about a month of pre-training where they, you know, people coming in from all different, you know, all different areas, different parts of the Navy, um, and they try to sort of group up a group into a class that, you know, runs usually somewhere around 120, 130 guys uh, when you class up. And then, 
you know, you do some, some preparation, get guys in shape who maybe weren't in shape because they're transferring off a ship or a submarine or someplace where they didn't have a lot of opportunity to train. And then when the, you know, when the, the, what they call your class update, which is when you start, you know, first, first phase, um, that, that runs six months and it's broken up into, into three phases of two months each that have different focus, um, areas of focus. And, and, you know, the first one is the one that everybody hears the most about because the first two months is called first phase. And it basically is where they just, they're simply trying to weed the class. They're, they're, you know, very little learning. Who is they? The instructors, you know, the instructor cadre, right. That, that, um, that run the programs. And the goal is to get as many people through, but always at or above the minimum standard, you know, they, they won't, push people through who aren't meeting the the standards and and their real goal is to get you to de-elect yourself right that's because they the reason for that isn't just to be cruel it's that if somebody has you know is the the propensity to quit or or has you know questionable um uh, deliberateness to what they've done here better to find out early rather than go spend a ton of the government's time money and take a scarce uh you know slot for somebody that they need to come out the other end and have somebody halfway through decide oh you know what this really isn't for me um and so a lot of energy goes into the first two months of of getting you to quit um and they're very good at it and so so it it is uh definitely when you say that when you say that and then smile what's what goes through your mind when you when you say and they're very good at and good at it look they you know seal team's been around since since the 60s and then you know udt before that for another you know 20 20 years or so so there's a lot of tradition that builds upon itself in figuring out all of the you know the things that they can do without leaving permanent physical damage to to put you you know under adverse conditions test your mental fortitude your commitment um, and it's, it's a very, I always laugh because it's such a funny place. Like that's one thing that, that I probably the thing I miss most about the seal culture in general is it's literally the funniest place that I've ever spent any time. And, you know, the, the guys are absolutely ruthless in their, their sort of, you know, gallows humor and their, um, I mean, it's a very alpha male, you know, probably a lot similar to you know i was i've never been on an nfl team but a lot of that kind of culture where guys are constantly you know ribbing each other and pushing each other and everything's a competition and um but it's hysterical i mean honestly half the guys in any of my units were could have probably qualified as stand-up comics if they if they had picked another profession and uh so you know it's one of those environments in which you just you laugh all the way through, even as you are being tested to the very limits of your of your ability. Is and, that uh, and is, that's you know it's kind of a cool thing. Yeah, is that an irony um, and that that mix paradox uh, paradoxical mix, or is that out of necessity? I think it's a little bit of both because as you as you you know you learn. Um, you have to learn to compartmentalize, right? And so, so you spend your whole youth, uh, the first part of your of your young, you know, male adulthood, learning to compartmentalize, and then probably the rest of your life trying to figure out how to decompartmentalize. But uh, but it's it's a it's a compartmentalization tool where 
when things are really down, you have to find the humor in it, right? Because if you didn't, you know, you'd quit or you'd cry. And neither of those, uh, you know, helps uh, accomplish the mission. So part of the culture, which translates very well, by the way, into entrepreneurship mm -hmm. is, is learning to sort of hold on to perspective, right? Even in really adverse circumstances by kind of a combination of humor and gallows humor and compartmentalization, right? And those two things work together um, in a way that allows you to to accomplish, you know, pretty pretty hard, scary things, and you know, chuckle your way through most of it. How would that translate? I've got a few ideas, but how would that translate into entrepreneurship? Well, I mean, I listened to you know, I listened to your why the why the podcast episode, and you talked a lot about you know why you're doing this podcast and the the reality that that you know very few i don't think any successful businesses ever just sailed right up to you know a billion dollars i mean the the closest ones probably in history have been in the last 15 years right 20 years where you had some true tech anomalies mm -hmm. that that pass as you know the norm which they're not because um, the norm, the reality is that that the vast majority of an entrepreneur's career, you spend, uh, you know, battling all kinds of challenges, right? And you spend you know, overcoming all kinds of dark moments, near-death experiences, and um, and so you know, what better training for that than having come from an organization that literally is about you know overcoming near-death experiences on the regular. This episode is brought to you by a little sipper called Magic Mind. Ever wake up in the morning wondering, what am I doing with my life? Well, what you probably aren't doing is sipping on them Magic Minds. Magic Mind is a two-ounce shot, matcha, nootropics, adaptogens, functional mushrooms, everything in a morning ritual drink that you've ever wanted. You take it alongside your morning coffee or tea, you get seven hours of creative, productive flow. It has 12 magical ingredients that all combine for everything you'd want in a shot. Energy, cognition, de-stressing, immunity support, everything in this two-ounce beautiful shot that tastes delicioso. So go check it out, magicmind.co. Enter promo code BTL. That's BTL for below the line for 20% off. Magicmind.co. Go check it out and get them sippers what would you say to someone that compares that compares entrepreneurship and starting a business psychologically to warfare you know you see that people make those analogies and someone that's seen both sides um is it that dramatic or is it uh or is I mean, that it doesn't even come close and it's a joke to compare well i mean to? look all life is a story right so so i think that that um that the stories that we tell ourselves matter because they have an impact on the way that we then process the, the stimulus that's coming at us from, you know, from, from all directions. And so I think that, that it's fine that there's some metaphors in business that, you know, harness sort of the military and the warrior mentality, because you're going to run into really hard stuff. And, you know, is, is somebody shooting at you with a, a bullet? No, uh, unless you're in a really bad business. But um, <laughs> but what it what it 
it feels like that. And I can tell you that I have, there have been many times when I was as or more stressed as an entrepreneur and feeling as or more stressed uh, and desperate than I ever felt, you know, in uniform. Um, because wow. in I, I, one thing I would say is you have whether it's a, whether it's a mirage or not, you have a very strong sense uh, in uniform that you are in control to some significant extent of you know your surroundings and and the circumstances. And a lot of times in business, it does not feel that way, right? It feels more like you are responding to a set of of um, you know, stimuli that you didn't have any ability, you didn't have any role in, in creating, maybe the economy changes, a pandemic comes along. And yet you're the one that has to sort of deal with the crisis. That's the outcome of, of that, you know, that environment. So I, I think that when I was, uh, when I was a SEAL, I, I generally felt that I had a set of standing operating procedures. You know, I knew that I had some of the best training that a human being had ever had on the earth and that so long as I executed, you know, the things that I had been taught uh, to execute in the way that I'd been taught to execute them, that it would all work out. Right. And I think there's a lot of times in business where you're not so sure uh, about, about that outcome. That is, that is fascinating to hear someone that has seen both of uh, these, these worlds, uh, say it say that it's it can be as stressful and i like and it's an interesting framing that you have this structure and even if it's a um a violent skirmish that's happening around you there's still some structure you know in your mind structure of of the unit structure of of potential backups coming and i'm just reading in reading between the lines of what you're saying um, so correct me where I'm wrong versus the entrepreneurial side of things where it, there is no, there is, there's no real semblance of structure along the way. And, and whenever you do as a founder, create that structure, you know, you've created it and you might've, you uh, pulled it out of thin air. You might've borrowed it from a book, might've borrowed it from experience, but it certainly isn't 60 years or 80 years of compounding structure and, and lessons that are that are being yeah. learned. Yeah, I think there's a lot of 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 justified sort of faith in the system when when you belong to an elite unit because you there's a couple of things that you have going for you and some of these I didn't appreciate until after I no longer had it. Um, but you know, number one, you, you have that historical institutional knowledge base that you were just talking about, right? And and um, and that's celebrated and it's um, emphasized, right? That look, all these lessons are being told to you for a reason, right? They were learned as, as they will tell you, you know, they were often learned in blood, right? And so when, when they tell you safety procedures that you have to go through prior to doing, you know, a training evolution that can kill you, well, there's a reason for those. There, the reason is because somebody else actually got killed doing it. And so, so that lesson got learned, got codified and became part of the fabric, you know, of the education that then gets imparted to subsequent generations of, of commandos. And so, you know, you have this sense of this long tradition of, uh, of, of learnings 
you also have an organization that during peacetime, which, you know, I mean, the vast majority of my career, there were plenty of there were plenty of opportunities to, you know, to do uh, the stuff you expected to do when you came in. But there was not a long sustained war. Right. That sort of started in you know late 2001 and has continued through present day. Um, but you had a lot of lessons that had been learned in pre- previous wars and then everything that that we did every day, literally every single day could kill you if a couple things went wrong. And so, so, you know, in that environment, you create a culture that is all around uh, learning and training. And, and the peacetime mission is to train, you know, absolutely A plus level players in that game so that when the game goes live, right, you're going to run your plays and you're going to dominate the opposition, right? And, and so that mentality creates this culture where, all right, we're all about training. We're all about, you know, achieving very high standards and being ready for whatever gets thrown at us. That, that gives you a lot of confidence. And then the other thing that, that a military unit has, certainly at the elite level, is, I mean, I was surrounded by guys who you could rely on. I mean, you know, you, you use the, the metaphor, you know, I, I like the metaphor of sort of fo- my foxhole guys, right? Like if I had to occupy a foxhole, and I knew that, you know, the, there was going to be a big, a big group of enemy coming at us. Who would I want in that foxhole with me so that I know they're not going to cut and run, right, when, when things get scary? Well, I mean, the SEAL teams, you're surrounded by those kind of guys mm. who, who just won't quit ever for any reason. And that's a real luxury because it gives you a sense of confidence when you combine all those things I was talking about from a cultural and historical standpoint and then you surround yourself with a bunch of cats that are you know absolutely the most driven dedicated and tenacious and resourceful people that you know exist that gives you a pretty good foundation right of confidence to take on difficult things you fast forward into an entrepreneurial career how many of those things that we just talked about exist right the answer is about that many and so you know, it makes sense when you look at it from that perspective that someone would say, you know, entrepreneurship is in a lot of ways scarier than than uh, than being, you know, in special operations. It's just the stakes are different. You're, you're not going to die. But if you if, if you if your business craters and your life falls apart, you know, you may feel like you died or you may wish you died. And, mm-hmm. you know, misery is a relative thing. Right. Nobody has the market cornered on it. I always laugh when People talk about, you know, how hard it must have been to go through buds and then you find out that they're battling cancer. Right? Well, mm-hmm. it's like it's all relative. Right. Nobody's got the market cornered on misery or or, uh, you know, fear. Would you say that? Would you say um, that hypothetical you said of, of someone saying uh, entrepreneurship is scarier than special operations? Not and I do not want to prime you. I want the real below line answer for you. From uh, well, I mean, I think it's I think it's a it depends on your definition of scarier, right? What scares you? If if as I explained, we you know we do stuff almost every day in the SEAL teams in training that could kill you, but it wasn't scary. It was super cool, super <laughs> exciting, super fun. You're on the cutting edge. You're developing new tactics and procedures that are going to make your your whole team perform better. You know, when you're called to do so 
and yeah, when you're called to do so, you could die. Uh, but part of hard training is that you put yourself in those positions where you could die almost every day. So over, over time, your fear of death falls and your, your confidence in your ability rises in entrepreneurship. I mean, you know, a lot of times you're doing things that you are not very well prepared for, because as you mentioned, you know, there's no playbook. Uh, there's lots of data out there, but no time to digest most of it. And, and, you know, you're doing a lot of stuff as an entrepreneur, uh, certainly as an undercapitalized entrepreneur that could be fatal to your organization. It, and, you know, if you care about your people and you care about your investors and you care about your family, that's pretty scary stuff. So, you know, I don't, which is, which is scarier. I don't know. I just know that they, they're both pretty damn scary. Well, you're one of the few, one of the few people that could, uh, that could even entertain that question. Walk me through, um, and we'll move on from SEALs to entrepreneurship and and the decision to start your own business, but first, walk me through peak stress moments within, peak stress moments or, or just the lowest emotional moments within your SEALs career. Oh, man. The ones I mean, that you can talk about. Yeah, you know, I mean, obviously, anytime that, anytime that a teammate, you know, get seriously hurt or killed. Those are about as low as, as you get. Um, but some of the, some of the stressors, the peak stressors in my experience were, are actually kind of funny in retrospect, right? They're, 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 I mean, most, I find most, again, going back to the gallows humor, um, most of the most stressful moments have a, a very high element of, of humor. I mean, there's tons of stories over the last, you know, 10 years, 15 years of guys, you know, be in the middle of firefights, very grim moments where, you know, they're j making jokes back and forth as the bullets are cracking into the, to the mud walls behind them, you know, and that, that, so that kind of explains a lot right there, right? That, that when you have, you have guys that are deploying in, in, into combat, um, missions and, you know, having bullets crack over their head and making jokes about, you know, somebody needing to, to, to get the enemy sniper a set of glasses, Right. Um, I mean, that's that's pretty amusing stuff in, in the heat of what would be a absolutely terrifying moment for for most people. And, you know, like one of the one of the earliest things that I remember just really being terrified by was as a young SEAL officer, you know, you'd you'd go out on training ops and sometimes in very arduous conditions and you'd be leading a patrol through the jungle. Well, jungle is a pretty hard place to navigate in. There's not a lot of, of, you know, there was no GPS back back when I was, you know, first coming up. So it was all still map and compass. And I remember being absolutely terrified on a couple of different uh, training ops where I was the guy in charge of where we were going. And I realized, like, I was freaking lost. You know, I, I thought I knew where I was. And then all of a sudden you realize, like, wait a minute. We aren't, we can't possibly be where I thought we were because, you know, I see a geographic figure that is, that does not make sense here, right on my map. Mm -hmm. And the, the utter terror that would sink into my heart, not because I was worried that, you know, we'd never find our way out. It was all about, you know, at that point I was in a SEAL team with about 20 guys in it, you know, a SEAL platoon is about the other 19 dudes that are on this patrol with me that are relying on me to do my job 
right? The one real job that I have in that case, which is to get us from point A to, you know, to point Z. And I've realized that I'm completely lost. And the horror of the reality that I I am now going to have to stop this patrol and I'm going to have to admit to everyone else, many of whom are older than me, more experienced than me already are, are like, ah, why do I got to follow this young clown, right? That's fresh out of buds and, you know, officer candidate school. And like in that moment, like you talk about losing perspective, right? Like just utter terror of, of the kind that would bring you to tears if, you know, if you, if you weren't able to overcome it. But then I realized like, well, I got no choice. I can't keep marching the guys around out in the jungle, right? I got to stop. I got to tell them, uh, Hey, I, I'm lost. And, and that sort of, you know, those, those lessons were learned early that what I realized was, Hey, first of all, you know, you shouldn't be trying to carry the weight of the world on your shoulders because usually there are some good people around you that know more than you do. And so that was one of the first, you know, moments where I learned a couple of important lessons. One is, you know, lean on your team more and, and worry less about, about having to be the hero figure that has all the answers. And, and the second was a really important lesson that I've used over and over in my career is that when you're lost, the best tactic in land navigation is to return to your last known point. Right. And I find this to be a super interesting metaphor uh, for my life as an entrepreneur is that when, when I get lost, Right. Or when I feel like we've gotten lost, I fall back on this metaphor. It's like, well, let's go back to the last point where we really knew where the hell we were. Right. Because that's a reset point. Mm -hmm. So in land nav, you go back to the last point at which you know where you are. You reorient yourself. Right. You you double check that the route that you thought was the right route is, in fact, the right route to continue on. And then you then you proceed. Right. And, yeah, you lost a little bit of time. Uh, and maybe you had to put up with some grief because you had to turn the patrol around and head back in the other direction, which just is, you know, savage in a SEAL unit, right? You can bet that for the next, you know, we used to have a, a, a hat that had a giant bone stuck through the side of it. And it was the Bonehead Award, right? And you know that you were going to be wearing the Bonehead hat. But, but by doing it, you actually build some confidence, right, among the others. Because now they're saying, well, all right. So we got us lost, but he's not such a jackass that he that his ego prevented him from admitting it, from from moving into action to try to to solve right that bad decision and then get us back on track so we can be successful. And that little metaphor, right, was was kind of a silly early moment of terror in my SEAL career that, you know, unfortunately, I got to experience a number of times as a SEAL. But it's uh, it's been a tool that I use over and over and over again as an entrepreneur. What what would the typical person um, or the person with with lower values do in that scenario, and what would have happened with the the platoon? Well, I mean, if you, I think the better thing to do is to cross it over into what happens in most civilian companies, mm-hmm. right? Um, because I think that that most SEALs would ultimately do what I exactly what I did, right? Which is sit down, have a talk with yourself, shit. I'm lost. And, and I'm going to have to tell my buddies, right. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm going to hope 
that they're going to forgive me and help me help me dig my way out. Right? Well, and some are but, buddies and some are just looking for you to, or at least you feel like looking for you to fuck up so they can be like, yeah, this young guy shouldn't have been in this, in this leadership role. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you have a, you have a pretty good alignment of, um, of mission. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, so, I mean, that is one of the, one of the, the real clarifying factors of, of being in the military is that, as much as you may want somebody to stumble at the end of the day, you can't afford to have them fail. Right. Because your life and the lives of of those around you all depend on this person being able to do their job successfully. And, and I think that, you know, that's true in business too, but, but there's not nearly the same alignment. And so I think that a lot of folks in, in my experience, you know, out in the civilian business world, um, they end up, placing their personal, you know, whether it's reputation, desires, you know, personal prerogatives, they very often place that ahead of the mission. Mm -hmm. And in that case, you know, you would very, I mean, I can think of many folks in, in my civilian business career who would have just kept, you know, heading out into the jungle, uh, until basically somebody relieved them of command because they wouldn't be able to admit that they didn't, they weren't omnipotent. They didn't know the answer. You know, their ego would prevent them from, from admitting that. And then they would start trying to find whose fault it was, right? Somebody had given me a a faulty compass or somebody didn't, you know, it was, it's always somebody else's fault or it can often be, I should say in, in the civilian business community. And that stuff just doesn't really exist in, in, you know, a good military unit. That I'd is, much rather hear you say, I fucked up and I'm lost and I need some help. Right. And, right. Because then you can fix it. Well, and that's such a beautiful metaphor. It's simple, but beautiful in that in the civilian professional startup world, um, I will say startups have a better alignment around that than, than big companies that have worked at both. When it's a 14 person startup, you really, you really do need everyone to carry their ball forward. When it's a five thousand person company that is going to have a hundred billion dollar market cap, it's actually quite uh, sadistic to see how you want people to fuck up so that you can take their job, and and you root for, and it also you know that I, people kind of want me to screw up so they can take my job, so I, it's okay if someone screws up more loudly and and subsumes the attention of of the piranhas it's actually really there's a big difference between my experience of you know seven people in in a garage and and uh 5000 people and fighting over um stock options worth millions the i will say that um though that that metaphor is is I'm laughing in my mind because it in the startup realm even with those 14 people you're leading them astray and you're the you know VP of sales in the jungle, it would be like the you and in, in command just being like, "Hey guys, I'm really proud of what we've done to date. I just got a job offer at this platoon that I'm going to take, and I'm going to bounce and and um, never and never admitting that you led astray, but also just piecing out so easily because of uh, because of the ease at which people can join other companies, bounce after 11 months, 17 months." And then the team yeah, I mean, really that, left. That's one of, I think that's one of the things that makes 
entrepreneurship lonely too, right? And and scary is that, um, you know, when you're in a startup, and especially in a in a competitive you know job market, a competitive area like like North, Northern California, where a lot of startups happen, you're you're constantly on edge because you know there's so many things that you don't know. You're trying to forge your way through creating something. You've got a team, right? But at any moment. You don't know when the exact scenario that you just, you know, illustrated is going to play out where somebody who is responsible for a piece of that of that organization has, you know, led the company astray. But rather than being forced to stay there and get the company out of, you know, that that predicament, they can just jump. Right. I just go, oh, well. You know, this isn't going the way I want it to. And I, you know, I have a recruiter calling me from, you know, Apple and I'm just going to declare victory and go. Well, guess what? You still led the organization out into a very precarious place and now you leave. So not only did, did that person screw things up, but now they've compounded that screw up because now they've created a smoking hole, you know, in, in the, the roster that has to be filled, that creates a huge dilemma. Like where are you going to go get another, you know, VP of sales in your, in your, uh, illustration to come in, ramp up quickly and know how to get the company back on track. I mean, it's a, it's a difficult environment. And, you know, I, I never really had to deal with that in uniform because everybody was fighting so hard for their positions and was so dedicated to the mission that, you know, you would never have somebody ever quit in the middle of an op, right? Mm -hmm. It just doesn't happen. And, um, and it happens all the time, I think in, in civilian business world, because people have different motivations, they have different, um, you know, different levels of dedication, uh, and, and they view, you know, the, the hierarchy of importance differently. I'm sure listeners as well are rifling through points in time where they either could have uh, taken more accountability and responsibility, I know I am, or also just thinking about the people that peace out after leading a team of 12 into the jungle. And it is, it's like, especially in Silicon Valley, it's like wet bars of soap. You, you any amount of, of leverage on, on many different people, not everybody, but many different people, any amount of adversity or, or accountability approaches them, they bounce. Uh, move around like a wet bar of soap. Uh, what are the what are the lessons and and uh, phrases, adages that you take from from special ops and and being in the military into entrepreneurship, or if there are any? Well, I mean, I there I guess there are, there are probably lots because I I do believe that almost everything that I know about you know, business and certainly business leadership, I learned as a SEAL. And I, that wasn't clear to me, obviously, until I had lived in both worlds. And it's why I'm such a, you know, a big fan uh, of companies hiring veterans, because I think you get, you know, when you hire somebody who served for however long, um, you get a whole bunch of things that come with that package that, that you don't necessarily understand if you've never served in the military. But, you know, some of the sort of the adages that you're asking me about are already baked into that cat, right? It's 
things like, you know, never quit, put, you know, the, the, the good of the whole above the good of the individual. I mean, these are sort of basic concepts that, you know, the team trumps the individual. Uh, that as simple as that sounds and as obvious as it should be, that is very often not a, a commonly held belief when you go out into a group of civilians that are optimizing for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you get, you get people that understand the value of mentorship because the second that you go into the military, you, you both get assigned and you start adopting mentors. And, and, you know, those mentors might only be a few years ahead of you, but they've already learned a whole bunch of things that you're about to learn. So, so the military is very, um, uh, conscious about, uh, fostering mentorship roles. And, um, you know, I think that that kind of culture is very healthy because first you want a great mentor and then at some point you want to become a great mentor. And, and that's just part of the fabric that, you know, of the culture that you get when you, when you hire a vet, um, that would take years and years to groom in an executive right in most businesses um and that's in the good executives right get that mm-hmm. groomed into them but but very often um you know you don't see that until somebody's been through several companies and they're an old gray beard right on, on the verge of retirement they start to to get you know reflective in all these lessons that they learned over the years whereas very often you know you, you'll find that in a veteran that served one hitch right so that that cat might be you know, 28 years old coming in with that kind of perspective, mm-hmm. um, into an organization. And I think, um, that's why I'm a big fan of, you know, of hiring vets. Are there, are there structures and, and frameworks from the seals that are just second nature to you? You don't even think about them, uh, or articulate them in your head, perhaps that, that entrepreneurs listening to this and, and myself could take away from that experience. I, I remember, I remember hearing one, this is probably um, not even an accurate Marine quote because people will throw throw these things, especially non-military people. But I remember someone, uh, an investor telling me a Marine quote that um, that I think about all the time, that the only wrong decision is no decision. And I don't even know if that's a Marine quote, but that has served me uh in so many situations where I've tried to put off making a decision and, and then you put it in military context and you realize how dire um, uh, of a circumstance it can become if you do not make a decision. And, and then you jump back into the lower stakes um, entrepreneurial world. And, and it's one of the, one of the things that I think about uh, probably three times a week where I'm like, we just have to make a decision here. Are there any of these seemingly pithy, but powerful uh, phrases and and reorientations of thinking that comes from the seals yeah i think so i mean you know there's there's kind of some that are almost trite right but they're fundamental to the military experience right like lead by example lead from the front i mean those are those are um you know very basic concepts but they're absolutely true in the civilian world right like you, you've got to be bold and and be willing to be accountable to lead right and you have to lead by example um and you know that example can be a lot of different styles but you know the style that you want your company 
and your team to emulate is the style that you'd better be living. Um, and, you know, let the troops eat first, right, is kind of a classic uh, military adage for officers, right, which essentially means, look, don't don't use your rank to go jump in the head of the line, right, because you can do the opposite, right? Because you are a, a senior rank, uh, get to the back of the line and let the troops eat first, right? Because if, if they see you doing that, it's a proxy to show that you care about them and their well-being. And, you know, that will then Im- imbue a sense of, of gratitude and loyalty and trust, right, in them. And they'll, take, they'll make sure you get taken care of. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, you know, I talk, I, I talk a lot about, you know, lessons I learned as a SEAL. And, and I, I tell a story about, you know, learning that early in BUDS where, you know, you have about 10 minutes to eat usually during BUDS and you, you're, you know, you're burning thousands of calories a day and you're starving. But when you get to the chow hall, you got about 10 minutes to get 130 guys fed before the, you know, the instructors come kick in the doors, you know, throw smoke grenades into the room, turn over the tables and out you go for your next three, four, five hours of torture before the next chance to eat. And, and one of the things that I learned early on is like, as a good officer, you better not, you know, be mixed in with the guys. You better be instead run to the front of the line to hand out trays you know, and silverware, right? So that the guys can get through the line and at least get something uh, on their on their plate and into their belly before this explosion happens. And you know, the first time that I that I did that, right, we got about two third two thirds three quarters of the way through the group, and in come the bad men, right? The tables turn over, out we go. You know, I'm starving. I haven't had a bite to eat. But but as we get back out on the road, shuffling in formation, you know, under our next our next. Uh, bit of torture you know the damnedest thing happens one of the guys next to me you know reaches into his into his uh his his utilities and pulls out you know a roll hands it to me he's like hey boss here take this i grab you a roll oh. right and you're like oh thank you right and 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 you learn you know and each time right next time you go in you're you're trying to be faster get everybody through but right as you're getting ready to sit down and eat boom it all happens again and out you go well the next time you know the same dude or another guy you know reaches into his pocket it's like hey I grab you a handful of spaghetti. Here you go, right? And mm-hmm. and pretty quickly you start to see that all right, well these guys aren't oblivious to the fact that I'm not eating, right? They're they're cognizant of the fact that I'm taking care of them. And so in turn, they want to take care of me, right? Mm-hmm. And and so that's kind of a a big concept that I think out in the out in the civilian business world there's way too much time spent with senior people, you know, kind of worried about taking as many of the spoils as they can um, rather than taking care of, you know, the, the little people that actually make their company go. Yeah. It's, it's almost like selfish selflessness of if you can tap into the magical way in which the universe can work in that way, which in the way that teams can work and you have that trusting outlook then it can repay with 130 people now looking out for you and that handful of spaghetti, you get something to eat, but also you get something far more valuable if you know you got 260 more eyes looking out for you um, in a way that wouldn't have been 
possible had you just gone in and gotten fed, but you wouldn't have had that uh, that additional, you know, that additional yeah, I mean, resource. It, so it's you know a lot of basic life lessons just come out of the military because you're put under a lot of stress. Um, you know, another another of those lessons is the value of authenticity, right? Because your your troops, whether they're civilians or you know military, will forgive a lot in you, a lot of failings, a lot of you know, lack of knowledge, bad decisions. Um, but the one thing they will absolutely never forgive is inauthenticity. And once somebody figures out that a leader is full of shit, right. And they're, they're, they're faking, um, uh, who they are, you've kind of lost your team, you know? And, and what's an example, what, what is a real life example of that that you remember? Well, I mean, I, you know, classic example is one we already talked about, like the, the ability to admit when you have made a mistake is is a is a really important thing. And it's hard. Right. Nobody wants to admit, man, I I really screwed up on this or I'm completely lost or but but what you find as you get older and you've led more people in more contexts over more years, you start to realize like. Yeah, everybody makes big mistakes and lots of them, right? And especially if you're trying to do things that are that are new, maybe haven't been done in, in exactly the way you're proposing to do them before, like it's inevitable. And so having leaders that are willing to go, yep, that didn't work. That that was uh, on me. And let's let's backtrack and try another tack. You know, that's just being authentic. Um and, and I think that you find over time that, that your teams appreciate authenticity, even, you know, you show them your warts and all, and they ultimately come to love you more for your vulnerabilities and your shortcomings, as long as you're straightforward about them, right? And as long as you don't try to appear as the omnipotent being that has all answers and um, when, you know, really it's impossible for anybody to to have the the market cornered on, you know, good decisions and smarts. Can you tell us the, the genesis of, of TRX and, and how you went from just the military world for 14 years? Was it 14 years uh, in the military into starting a company? Well, I, I had created this, this strap, as I mentioned earlier, that, you know, was basically just to be used when we were traveling, it was a way to you're stashed away somewhere, you know, waiting to do an operation and you need to stay in shape. And so I had come up with this idea of, you know, how to use some some non-elastic straps to as a prop to lift your body weight against gravity. And just the way that I ended up designing this thing, it allowed for pretty much you know, any human movement to be performed and then loaded right? Destabilized and then loaded, which makes a movement harder. Mm-hmm. And so you're loading it with your body weight and you're destabilizing it by changing your angle or, you know, doing a squat on one leg instead of two, a lot of different ways to, to challenge those movements. But I came up with this kind of simple system, just a little harness. And, um, and then it ended up, you know, fast forward, it ended up becoming popular among the guys in my squadron. Then it, it, uh, when I was at Stanford, uh, the, you know, the athletic coaches, I'd go out and train in the athlete training center and they would, 
see me on this thing and they would always come up because you know there'd never been one nobody ever seen one so they'd come up and be like all right what the hell is this thing and then a few minutes later they'd be asking me to make them for their squad and their squads kind of spanned from you know the full gamut of of athletics male female big athletes small athletes and at that point you're at business school thinking about what you're going to do with your life right when you when you graduate and it just kind of kept beating at me going, you know, I wonder guys used to joke in the squadron, Oh boss, you want to, you know, you want to sell this thing and make a million bucks. And I just kind of laughed it off because I thought it was, it was a kooky idea, but then you're in business school and kooky ideas are part of the experience. And, and so I decided that um, ultimately I would, you know, take the second year of business school and kind of evaluate whether this was an idea that was worth pursuing or not. And I decided that it was. And so that was kind of the, you know, the, the genesis of what became my startup. And I, I was old. I mean, I was the granddaddy of my class at Stanford. I was the oldest guy by probably five years. And because I was 36 when I started, right? And the, the, uh, the modal age was like 26 and a half. And the mean was 28 because of me out there on the <laughs> end of the teeter-totter. Um, and, and so... Uh, you know, I knew that I had maybe one shot at an entrepreneurial venture before I was going to have to go and become a responsible, you know, mortgage paying uh, adult. And I uh, so I, I used that uh, that first couple of years out of business school as the opportunity to take a swing for the fences. And, you know, I, I don't know if I connected, uh, you know, at a grand slam level, but but I, I at least, you know. With over fifty million in sales, I'd say you built one hell of a. One yeah, hell we're of a coming up on. We'll be. We should be. You know, more than double that. All so, right. Well, so, that's. Uh, yeah, that's. And I've. I'm sure listeners have seen these all over the place. Um, the TRX straps and and have come across the company. The um, what what are some of the peak stress moments within TRX within the founder side of your life that um, that that come to mind and then also the emotional lows because sometimes they're, they're, they're both taxing, but different. Well, I mean the, the, I think most of the emotional lows come when you sort of, you, you know, you're, you're working very hard and you're, you're trying to build value for, you know, your customers and your team and your stakeholders and just shit's not working. Right. And that that's a that's a hard that's a hard place to be um, because it's it's more difficult to. To change and to pivot rapidly uh, when you have a large team, you know, it's it's easy, as you mentioned, when you've got, you, you know, a small handful of folks, it's, it's much easier to be aligned and it's much easier to pivot and stay aligned during that pivot. But, you know, as your organization grows and succeeds and communication becomes the number one challenge, right? Because keeping everyone aligned requires, requires great, effective, consistent communication. And that's hard to do, right? It's easy to say, but it's very hard to do. It's, it's one of those kind of classic simple but not easy concepts. It's, it's a simple notion, but it ain't easy to make happen. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, you know, those moments get very frustrating, I think, to to the entrepreneur who's trying to lead that gaggle, um, 
you know, through, through a, a difficult set of tasks and, and get somewhere. Um, you know, and I think sometimes the, the mistakes that you make that are, that are very hard to recover from those, those are the ones that are, are stressors, right? Because you, they don't kill you, but you got to go on dealing with the ramifications of those mistakes, you know, for potentially a long time. And that, that causes a lot of stress and, um, uh, and entrepreneurship is hard to begin with, right? It takes a lot of, a lot of huge amount of time, huge amount of dedication and, um, and generally, generally, not always, but generally the payoff, right. Is, is a decade decades later. Away. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so staying, staying focused and driven, during that long period of, of building before you ever get to harvest, um, you know, those are, those are all part of what makes entrepreneurship a, a challenge. And yet, ironically, it's, it's one of the reasons that people jump in is because they think it's going to be the, the shortcut to fruits <laughs> of their labor, having no idea that it's, it is a, a 10 year, 15 year journey. Yeah. You know, social media has been very funny in that because I'm like old enough to to have, you know, been an adult before social media, but young enough to have embraced it. Right. So so kind of, you know, I have I have both perspectives. I lived a long time when there was no social media, um, no Internet for that matter. Right. And, and I saw that and, you joined uh, Twitter in 2009. I was yeah, actually probably. That's, that, yeah, that's probably see, you know that I don't. But yeah. um I mean, but I would have done it purely because the business, it seemed to be a prudent thing for me to do for the business, mm -hmm. right? Not because I was dying to become a social mediaite. And um, I, I think one of the things that social media does that, I mean, I think there are a lot of things it does that are not good. Um, there are some that are good, but one of the things that is not good is that is that it creates this facade. You know, you you think that these things that you see trending in social media are when you see enough of them trending, they must be the norm. Right. And so when you see the, you know, the overnight riches stories of these tech entrepreneurs and some of the stratospheric achievements in terms of enterprise value that, that, you know, guys like Sergey Brin and Jeff Bezos, and uh, you know, all of the Titans of, of the tech, world, you start to sort of think that's the norm. But the irony is that that couldn't be further from the norm, which is why these things are noteworthy. But when you have enough of them on a regular basis, they start to appear to be the norm. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that's, you know, that makes that makes it hard for for most of the entrepreneurs that are out there struggling through the day in day out grind to build a business that, you know, if you're really fortunate and really good at some point gets to profitability, sustained profitability and, you know, provides a good livelihood for, you know, your team and yourself and your family and provides some reasonable return to your investors. I mean, that is actually the definition of business success, right? But, mm -hmm. but it doesn't feel that way when you're comparing yourself to Jeff Bezos Right. right. <laughs> and and or Bill Gates or Elon Musk. And, you know, there's a hand there's maybe a dozen of these folks names out there, you know, maybe a couple dozen that any of us can name. 
And that should tell you something, right? The vast majority won't ever get anywhere close to that. And that's okay. Because if you can achieve those things that I mentioned earlier, which is build something that does something good for your customers, provides a good lifestyle for your team, and then ultimately provides a good lifestyle, uh, both during the venture and subsequent to the venture for the entrepreneur and his or her family, and returns a reasonable return to one's investors to the extent that one had one, well, like that right there, that's a good solid triple, right? Maybe a home run. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so I think it's important that, you know, the, the folks that listen to your podcast who are entrepreneurs, at least be aware, there's nothing wrong with shooting for the moon, but you know, you should at least be aware that there ain't many moon landings, right? There's 10 <laughs> right? of those, 10 of those people, 10 million business owners in America yeah. alone and, and listeners around the world, 50 million, a hundred million business owners, um, in the countries that listen to this, uh, you know, this podcast. So, and there's 10 of those people. Yeah. So, so it's important not to lose track of that because then you can start, you know, I hear, I hear like these crazy stories about you know, people committing suicide because their business failed and it, and it, it's, it really shows you like, wow, you talk about a loss of perspective, right? But, but when, you know, if you do, if you're not cognizant of the reality that, yeah, you're, you're listening, you're, most of the news you see is about the, the 10 guys or gals that got really, really lucky, you know, in a lot of ways. And we're good because it's not, you know, it's, I, 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 I do believe in the old adage that, you know, good players make their own luck to some extent, but a lot of the, the stratospheric successes required a lot of luck along the way. And most of them, right. I love reading. I read a lot of like business biographies. And the reason I do it is because it makes me feel better about all the stuff that I've screwed up over my career. Right? Amen, because you, right. you, you go read these stories and you realize like, holy shit, you know, Apple was a month from bankruptcy before they got an investment from, of all places, you know, Microsoft. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, you can, you can go back and read, you know, the everything store and you can see all of the, the trials and tribulations that Jeff Bezos, you know, went through in getting to what today is this stratospheric success. But I mean, you know, he came inches from, you know, failing multiple times and, and is hardly a guy that everyone sits around and sings his praises, you know, those who have worked for him, because just like everybody else, he's had to do all kinds of crazy, hard, you know, things. He needed a lot of luck. He needed a lot of help. And, you know, and his story worked out. But, but uh, if you, if you compare yourself to, you know, Amazon, the likelihood of you having a happy outcome are very low. Right. Versus if you if you kind of create a set of goals that are reasonable as success benchmarks and then, you know, try to achieve them and exceed them. But if you achieve them, you, you got to really you know celebrate those successes. Otherwise, entrepreneurship can be kind of a thankless um, you know, road to travel. If if all you're focusing on is this mythical summit that, you know, is up there among the centibillionaires mm -hmm. with. Well, someone could easily make that observation with with your story of reaching 100 million in sales with TRX. Walk me through walk me through an actual 
absolute low point along the way. And right before we started to record, uh, you mentioned it's just uh, everything. <laughs> everything in entrepreneurship is so <laughs> damn hard. But walk me through an example where you feel we maybe you still reflect on a near-death experience or or just an emotional low in your career. You know, I think like one of the big mistakes that, that I made in my career, and I made so many of them. I mean, fortunately, none of them have been fatal um, yet. And, and I try not to make, I try not to make many of the same ones because I do think that's kind of, you know, important. Like everyone, every entrepreneur should be making yeah. mistakes, make every but, mistake, but make it once. Yeah. And, and you want to, you want to try not to make them multiple times. And that means you got to be paying attention. It comes back to being authentic, being able to say like, yep, that, that was a dog shit idea and it was all mine. Right. And, and you have to be able to, 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 to have those conversations with yourself. Otherwise you can't learn and you can't improve and you're doomed to make the same mistakes. Right. Um, but you know, one of the ones that I made is I got, and it's why I'm kind of passionate about that rant that I was on a minute ago about not benchmarking yourself off of, you know, the, the tiny group of anomalies that, that pass as the norm. Mm -hmm. You know, I was so focused coming out of Stanford on, you know, if you can't be a hundred million in revenue, you know, in two years, like it's not worth doing because I was coming out on the heels of what became obviously the dot-com bust. But there was all of this kind of belief that, you know, if you can't, if you can't be at a hundred million in a year, like psh, do something else. Well, that was mm -hmm. just all like a crock of shit. Mm -hmm. um, but nobody knew it at the time. Right. And, and so part of what that, what that did in me was it made me more inclined to take risk and, and want to grow as fast as possible than I think was healthy in retrospect, you know, and then one of the mistakes I made is I decided when we didn't really need it to go raise private equity. And, you know, it's not that I think that all private equity people are scumbags, but I think there are plenty of private equity people that are and i think there's there's a lot of the, the bigger the bigger issue is that there are a different set of of um priorities and imperatives right when you take a an institutional investor alongside an entrepreneur and i i do think there are some structural problems in that relationship that that in most cases doom the outcome from the start to be an outcome that, you know, maybe nobody's happy with. Certainly the entrepreneurs often aren't. And, you know, that was one of the mistakes I made is, is I, I thought we needed to go raise a bunch of money to achieve all these things, right. To get huge fast. And in retrospect, I just realized that that, that is a, a wrongheaded approach because really what you should be doing is, is building a business that is sustainably profitable that when you do want to make investments, um, you know, they're speculative, you should do so ideally out of cash or maybe raise a little bit of debt or a little bit of equity um, because you don't know what's going to happen as a result of those investments. They may go nowhere. You And the more money you raise, ironically, the more blind alleys you are able to run down and the more speculative you know, investments that you're able to make. But the thing that never leaves is that obligation that you, that you took, right. When you took that, that money. And once you get a partner who is short-term focused, which most institutional investors have to be, 
not all, but, but most, now you've created a circumstance that's really misaligned, right? Because building a successful business mm-hmm. almost always requires the long view and a, 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 you know, a decades long view. And, you know, most institutional investors, five years is an eternity for them. Um, you know, there are right. some different profile offices that can take longer positions, but most of those behave, they're more like super angels, right? Than they are true institutional investors that have taken a bunch of money from a bunch of different sources. And now they have a finite horizon, a guaranteed return. So, you know, that's one of the, and they're not, and they're just in many ways, just like the founders thinking, okay, this needs to be a hundred million in a year. They are thinking this needs to be what so-and-so did four years ago with this company that I'm mapping this off of in my mind. I'm not even telling the founder, but this is what I want this to be in two years, three years. This is got to be like the deal that I did six years ago that I've mapped this to, and now it needs to be, and it's all in many ways, especially in the private equity side, it's a, it's a spreadsheet that they, that they need to mirror. It's not a, a business. It's not a Yeah. And, and it's not, it's not so much a comment on like, you know, I mean, I joke at the beginning, I do think there's plenty of self-serving cats out there in the institutional investment world that, you know, will do anything they can to shift risk off of their plate and onto the plate of an entrepreneur and and the founding team. But, you know, Hey, that's his or her job. Right. And so that's the thing that entrepreneurs always need to remember is it's not just that, you know, your, your, your institutional capital partner is, is an evil human being. It's that you have fundamentally different uh, constituencies. You, it's, it's easy and early in the relationship, you know, you're both hopeful Right. And so, of course, you know, the the investors will will talk about all the synergies that they're going to bring to a, you know, to a venture, which are almost impossible to deliver unless they have built a company just like yours. Right. Before Mm -hmm. in their career, which which I think in the early days of private equity was was more common. You had a lot of of, you know, successful business builders who then took their money and invested it in other businesses. I think as that's become more of a profession unto itself, the amount of of institutional investors with you know real operational experience is is relatively small. Yeah, seventy percent, seventy percent of and that's on venture capital. I'm not sure within private equity, which is probably even lower because it's um, growth stage capital. But in venture capital, seventy percent have no operating experience. Yeah, and that's hard, right? Because you're now you're pairing together somebody who's got the power of the purse with somebody who, you know, is a, is a ground level grinder and, and kind of, you know, optimistic visionary. And very often that's not a good match. And, and you end up in these, you know, long, what, what can be a very long term bad marriages that, that are really destructive to, you know, to the business and certainly to the entrepreneur's mental health. Um, so like, that's an example of a, of a mistake that you can make, I won't really say carelessly, but, you know, in retrospect, it'll feel careless. Like, man, why did I do that? Right. That, that can be with you for a very long period of time. And in that kind of a circumstance, you know, it's, it adds a level of stress that you don't need. And so that's why I always now preach like, Hey, you know, get to profitability, right. And, and sustain your profitability and everything is better, 
right? Mm-hmm. You're, you make better decisions. The clock moves more slowly, right? You, you're not under pressure and, um, and you can actually really enjoy the business rather than feel like you're constantly up against, you know, like a guillotine, you know, hanging over your head. Because I, I think that, that a lot of entrepreneurs live, live a lot of years like that. I'm nodding internally so much from two things that I've, I've learned personally is, is one, you can overwater a plant and too much water to a, a too much funding, too much capital for a business, for a startup. You just end up misusing it because you don't know how to, you don't know how to ad- adequately or efficiently use the capital. And so you are launching seven experiments at one time and, and you're solving problems with money rather than with thoughtfulness and then the other thing that comes to mind is the what something that you're touching on is that that misalignment of expectations with a partner the misalignment of expectations you know with a capital partner or internally i'd say 90 percent of the most stressful moments in my entrepreneurial career from having to do layoffs at 26 to uh to having to go through a painful acquisition to uh, making suboptimal choices that I knew, okay, well, we just have to make them all stem from, damn it, James, why did you set these crazy expectations for yourself and much less for a team where, you know, individually, maybe I can adapt and just recalibrate those expectations, but setting it for a team of 30, 50, 70 employees, setting it for uh, a capital partner that's joining the board. And it was totally out of insecurity. And how easy it is to write checks with your mouth that your business can't cash, but it is out of insecurity, out of out of a feeling that I needed to do this to get this capital that hopefully will be you know the safety net for all of the things that were getting wrong along the way. And and I don't think I thought about it in that with that clarity, but I certainly look back and say, holy shit, those sleepless nights. The heart condition you you got from the the excess stress, the um, the problems that you caused, the relationships burned, dude. Why did you set these crazy expectations over that, and over and well, over again? Hey, I mean, one of the reasons why I think your podcast is is cool is because you know you've lived a lot of these experiences, right? And that's that to me is is um, is really important, and it's it's kind of gets to where that problem that we were talking about, the divide between entrepreneurs and institutional investors is that, you know, if you, if you haven't lived all of those experiences, then you couldn't possibly understand them. And, and I think, you know, you also had a funny, you reminded me of another adage out of the SEAL teams that, that you, yours was a bit more genteel, but there's, there's a saying that, you know, an old, a crusty old master chief once told me, oh, Lieutenant, Never let your alligator mouth write checks that your hummingbird ass can't cash. <laughs> and, and, right. And it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a really important lesson for entrepreneurs. Like, man, it's so easy amidst the combination of hope and optimism, right. That it, that it takes to want to take on that kind of venture. Um, and then you've got somebody who is offering to invest in you and wants to hear Right. How right. great the business is going to do. And then you've got a team who they want to hear how incredibly well this business is going to do. It's really easy to, to seduce yourself into, 
you know, putting up goals that that are really kind of preposterous and you won't discover it till later. But by that point, you've had to live with the consequences of these ridiculously overblown projections, right, that you originally went out and published to whoever was, you know, within earshot. And again, that's another one. It's kind of like, you know, it's, it's one of those long term mistake or like kind of short term actions that have long term impact that you have to live with and that create stress. So I, I would, you know, really encourage entrepreneurs. And I always do whenever I'm, you know, I teach I teach entrepreneurship classes at both, you know, the GSB at Stanford and at the Marshall School at USC, which are my two alums, my t- uh, my two alma maters, I should say, I'm an alum. Um, uh, I always talk about like the big lessons I've learned, right? One, do not project ridiculous growth, right? Because you're going to have to live with those projections for a very long time and they're going to make you unhappy and stressed out. Right. And, and the, the conversely, like in my, you know, in my new startup, Hey, I'm taking a lot of these lessons and, and putting them to use. Like we're going to have the most modest projections ever at outfit because Mm -hmm. why? Because I know that we'll be able to achieve them, hopefully beat them. And, then it's all good. Right. And sometimes it's so funny because you could put up, you could have a, you know, a projection that you're going to do 50% growth, right. Year over year for five years. Well, all right. The odds of that happening, very small. Right. But, but the irony is that if you come in at 48% growth, right. You feel like a failure. Your capital partners view you as, as having failed. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it's like, wait a minute, in what universe is 48% year over year growth for a, for a, you know, sequential series of years, a failure. Well, it's a failure because you said you're going to do 50. Right. Versus if you went in and said you were going to do 30% growth, right, which is still like heroic, and then you do 48%, well, now you're the Messiah, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes it could just be the difference of a couple points either way, right? You miss by a couple of points, you're a goat. You clear it by a point, you're a hero. And so why put yourself under the kind of pressure that setting up some, some barely achievable goal is going to do when in fact, you know, just lower all of your expectations a little bit in terms of your expenses, you know, set realistic goals and then achieve them. And life is good. Right. Yeah. Happiness is expectation minus, minus reality. And if you (laughs) set that expectation so high and it's one thing that you're touching on that I, I hope listeners truly internalizes is you as the founder that choose that you get to choose these yes there is such a tantalizing outside um seduction to set these crazy high numbers there's going to be a capital partner that it could be a couple of extra million million dollars of funding if you do set these crazy numbers but you will pay for it and you get to choose you in fact, you're a stronger founder for saying, yeah, that would be great. So-and-so, that would be awesome if we could hit that. But I don't think we're going to with our current plan and some of the challenges we still need to fix. So I really think it's going to be more like 30%. And then, hey, let's get really pumped if we get to, you know, if we get closer to that 50. Um, but for the team site, and you'll sound like the most vet founder ever. You'll sound like the most unflappable creator 
to to have that type of you know manage that type of situation in that way versus what I know I've done spent a decade doing like yeah okay I think we yeah if we change let me come back to you because I think if we do change some things we can get to that number and you make a friend in the short run and and you end up making a lot of enemies in the long run or a lot of well, a lot of team yeah, members that are burned out in the long run. That's where I was going to go next is like what what the effect that has on your team, mm-hmm. right? Because you sit down and you present to a handful of investors this ridiculous plan, right? Well, they go, great, on board, off they go, right? They're gone. They're not thinking about you now. They're thinking about you episodically only. You now have to take that plan back in and every single hour of every day You've got to be trying to drive a team to achieve that plan, right? Well, if it's ridiculous, very quickly the team is going to look at it and be like, how in the hell are we going to achieve these goals, right? And so it creates enormous amount of stress for them. And then when they don't achieve it, then it creates, you know, it, it, it becomes demotivation because it's like, well, shit, you know, why should we even – why bother? Like we're just getting a number that is ridiculous to begin right. with causes them to question your competence, right? Because why on earth, if this guy wasn't clueless, why would he have set us up for, for this kind of an unachievable, you know, hurdle. Mm-hmm. And, and there's just nothing but nothing but bad that comes from that. And yet it's very tempting because it's hard when you're full of optimism and you believe so much in the potential for your business it's hard to do what you should do, which is say, all right, here's what I think we can do. I'm going to divide that by half. And that's going to be the story that I'm going to tell everybody else, right. As, as our goal, because now you've actually set up both yourself and your team and your investors for success. But it's, it's one of those lessons that you only learn by having done it the other way and had to live with it for a decade or more. Right. (laughs) And thinking, well, I got an alligator mouth. I probably have an alligator ass, so let's do it. Right. And uh, you realize, oh, no, uh, no one yeah, it's does. It's just a hummingbird. Right. It's just a hummingbird. Okay, Randy, I got uh, two last questions for you. First is tell me three stories, and maybe we've touched on on them, but, um, but I would love to hear three stories that have helped shape who you've become as a person today. Well, I mean, I, I, I tried to weave a couple of them in, right, because because my I think my, my early failings as an athlete uh, were both motivation to work hard. You know, I, I did look back on some of those experiences and go, God, you know, I wonder what I could have achieved if I'd worked harder. Uh, but they were also ended up being sort of, uh, a good lesson that when you work really hard and you find your wheelhouse, right? Because in my case, right, baseball wasn't it, right? And neither was football. But then I got into some of these sports that, that were in my kind of wheelhouse and not surprisingly, right? Like, like they were kind of masochistic, uh, not super, not big crowd pleasing sports, wrestling, rowing, you know, uh, martial arts, things that were more sort of, um, solo sports in many ways. Yeah. And and you you know, they, they're team, they're team sports, but you really have to go inside yourself, Mm -hmm. right. And and control and deliver your piece to, to be successful. Um, I, I came to realize that like, Hey, a lot of times if, if you're trying and you're not succeeding, it may be that you haven't set yourself up in your wheelhouse. Right. And so, so, you know, rather than lose hope, just keep trying and keep trying to find the area that, that, you know, you're good at. 
right? And and so that was that was something I learned, you know, from my early from my early um, struggles as as a fledgling athlete. Um, you know, I, I told you about the experience in, in being lost in the SEAL teams and, and what that taught me about, you know, how to go to my last known point and be straightforward with my team mm-hmm. about, you know, my own shortcomings. And, you know, one of the one of the one of the later in life lessons I learned was when I was at Stanford my, my first year, I was terrible. I mean, I hadn't had math in 25 years. Right. I, w- I didn't get in because of my GMAT scores. I got in because I was this, you know this frogman that had an interesting resume. Um, and I was really just floundering during, I, I think I was the bottom of the first 20 exams I took at business school. Now you can imagine how that felt having just come from, you know, the special missions unit being a squadron commander there. And now I find myself at the bottom of the first 20 curves that I, that I took. And in retrospect, what it, what it gave me, was a level of empathy that I probably never would have had had I just stayed in the SEAL teams because I, I did have this very sort of Dar- Darwinistic, uh, you know, Lord of the Flies view that if, if you're not succeeding, you're just not trying hard enough. Mm. And what I discovered, you know, when I was dropped into having never had statistics, having never, you know, taken anything above algebra in, in uh, you know, in college, like, there can be some circumstances in which you simply, no matter how hard you try, you are not equipped to succeed at the level of, of your expectation. And so I, I got a lot of empathy out of that experience, you, you know, kind of what I would call mid-career empathy, which which I think, you know, in general has made me, I'm sure some of my folks would tell you, yeah, but he was still a hard ass. Um, but I think I was a lot less of a hard ass than I would otherwise have been because of that experience of realizing like, man, I'm working my ass off and I'm just not succeeding, you know, and that, and that was important at, at 36, right. Feeling fairly superhuman to suddenly be brought back down to earth and be like, Oh, that's right. You know, you can't be good at everything and uh, you're going to struggle and you need to, you know, you need to ask for help uh, from people who, who have skills that you don't. So that, you know, those were a few of, of the kind of pivotal moments along my long tortured path that that taught me things that, you know, I think were were good lessons and, and have helped me uh, be a better, you know, better guy in my 50s than I was in my 20s. I think it's the uh, the benefit of creating constantly creating is you see which which ones you just caught a good wave on, which ones uh were the wave which ones were you and it also is just a humbling experience to start over start from scratch and realize holy shit i am starting from scratch here and i had one of those experiences the other day so it's and i and it's hopefully i get uh to a point where it's like oh this is exactly how it's supposed to be but oftentimes it's just a reminder of okay been here before after 24 hours of being like why it is so hard to start anything and start from scratch when you, at least for me, can feel like I, oh, I should have a leg up here. Um, but yeah, but it is easier, right? The second, the second time because the you, psychology, you absolutely. That, yeah. And, and yeah. yes, you avoid some of the foundational mistakes like expectation setting. Yeah. There's just a lot of mistakes that hopefully you won't make the second time. Right. And I, I mean, I take some confidence in that with, with outfit is like, all right, well, I, I learned a lot of hard lessons that now, 
you know, this venture uh, gets to benefit from. And I think it's one of the reasons why, 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 you know, multi-time entrepreneurs, even if their first time wasn't successful, they're much more valuable than first-time entrepreneurs because they've learned all those lessons, right? And I mean, it sounds hypocritical, but I, I would, I would, you know, I'd be hard pressed to get excited about investing with a first-time entrepreneur if I had the opportunity to invest in in one that had already, uh, you know, run the rapids a time or two, because you really, you really do realize that, like, yeah, a lot of this stuff repeats itself, and if you can avoid making the same mistakes. Uh, you're gonna you're gonna get to where you want to go that much faster. Mm-hmm. Well, last question for you, Randy. What is something you think a lot about, but you rarely get a chance to talk about socially, professionally, personally? Yeah, I guess I think about a lot and don't talk about a lot. That's part of my internal compartmentalizer world. But that's you know, awesome. So you... many people answer the question of like, I think I talk about everything, and I know that's a bold faced lie. So that's no, awesome. I spend a lot of time. I spend a lot of time internally processing. But, you know, like when you you mentioned, you know, when you originally reached out to me, that that was one of the things you, 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 know, you wanted me to think about. And I I I think something I think a lot about and and don't talk that much about are the influences of the some of the women in my life, specifically my my little sister and my grandmother. You know, they they were such interesting kind of studies in life because um my little sister, Michelle died of brain cancer at eight Mm. and, you know, she got sick at six and then it took a couple of horrifically painful years for, you know, of, of, Oh, it's going to be okay. Oh, it's not. Oh, it's going to be okay. You know, it's the, the cancer uh, roller coaster. Mm. Um, but watching her experience and, and how short, right. How short and, and kind of unfair, that that circumstance was for her um it kind of has has impacted me throughout my life and and the opposite pole was my grandmother who lived to be about six months shy of 104 right and both of these people had such different experiences in life but they were both you know so instructive to me i mean i i think that you know, my, my little sister's experience definitely created in me kind of a carpe diem, you know, mentality. And that's something that my mom, you know, kind of in the middle of those bookends has always, has always espoused was like, you know, Hey, you're only going to die. So you may as well, you know, make the most of, of every day while you're here. But my grandmother became really, um, she was really important in the way that I view the world. And a lot of it, a lot of the wisdom that I got from her was came in the last couple of years of her life because she was just reflecting on over a century, right. Of, of life. I mean, she had more than lapped, you know, a lot of the people that, that were her cohort when she was born. Right. I mean, Mm I think back then the average age life expectancy was somewhere between, you know, 60 and 70 years. And, here she was coming up on, you know, 104, but it was really interesting listening to her talk about, man, when I look back at my life, all the things that I, that I got wound up about, you know, that involved what other people thought. And she's like, you know, 
I used to agonize over what the neighbor across the street thought of, of me and our family, you know, and she got divorced. My grandmother got divorced. My grandfather, when she was in her fifties, right. Which, which in the sixties was, was a, was, was a scandalous affair. Mm. And, you know, at a hundred plus, she would just kind of laugh and be like, yeah, they're all dead now. So, so why I spent, you know, why I spent a minute, much less, you know, months and years of my life worrying about what other people were, you know, were, were going to say or think or do. Um, it was just time, you know, as she, as she would say, like, you've got so few days that any day you spend in angst is a day not well spent. And, you know, that I, I really, I really got a lot out of, out of her retrospective view, right, of a hundred and almost 104 years on earth when i contrast that to my little sister right who who mm -hmm. didn't even get eight years yeah that's a profound contrast to seize each to instill a mentality of seizing each day and um and to have the contrast of the wisdom after 103 years lived saying that uh releasing or at least in it for my interpretation influencing you to to break free from the prison of, of what people think that is such a especially for creators that is a prison we all find ourselves in so often is what will people think well i think that's the central tension of of a creator's life is is what they want for themselves and what others others that they might genuinely love care for want of them yeah, I, I mean, I think that, that probably the best way it affected me, both the mashup of their perspectives that can be useful to your, you know, your listeners, um, uh, certainly the entrepreneurs among them, is, is just this idea of like, th there's a, this concept of failure, right, that, that people have. And I'm, I've just never been a believer in it because to me, the only time you can actually fail is when you quit. And, and you know... Even then, if you, if you take what happened and roll it into your next endeavor, then it wasn't a failure, right? It was just a learning. And I, and I really, I think that a lot of people, you know, either live in fear of, of failure uh, or they refuse to take chances and pursue things that, that they think would be um, you know, worthy of pursuit because they're afraid that they might fail. And I, I think that like, what the hell is failure, right? Like, what is it exactly? Like it really isn't, it's just a social construct because the only way that you become accomplished at anything is through repetition. And, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're taking things on, you're never going to be great at it at first. It's always going to fall short of your expectations. But if you keep practicing each subsequent you know, time, uh, you do a little better and a little better and a little better. So were those previous efforts failures? Oh, they were just practice. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I really believe that, that there's really no such thing as failure in reality. There's a lot of talk about failure. There's a lot of sort of third party judgment. Oh, that person failed. Well, like that's not your decision to make whether somebody else failed. Maybe they were just on their journey and they were learning. Right. Right. So, so I think that's something that, that really entrepreneurs should try to banish from their vocabulary and just look at, Hey, I'm on a journey. 
I've got some goals. If I work hard enough and I keep, you know, refining my goals and, and I'm realistic, I'm going to achieve things that are important to me. And along the way, right, it's like climbing a mountain. You know, mm-hmm. you look up and you see the summit in the distance and you think, all right, I'm just going to blast straight up this. Well, that's not how mountains work, right? Mm-hmm. There are a series of false summits because there's smaller mountains in front of larger mountains. And so every time you think you're halfway up, all of a sudden you head down into the next valley and you realize, oh, shit, now I got to climb back to where I was and then another false peak and then I'm going to go down again, right? And mm-hmm. and it's it's just the the journey is going to have all kinds of ups and downs and it's why you got to pick a path that you feel confident you can enjoy and you got to enjoy those intermediate you know victories along the way because um you know there's there's probably never a complete victory nor is there a complete failure it's we, we generally orbit somewhere between those two poles and that's okay well and as you touched on even when you are leading a team and completely lost it can still become a foundational lesson for the rest of your life yeah because eventually you're going to get found right 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 and it's uh and sometimes it's just going back to that the the previous spot that you knew where you were starting over and uh and and reaching the actual summit if that even exists which i think we both would say doesn't even really exist it is all false summits but um randy thank you so much for the the generosity of your time and the insight shared today where can people find out more about you trx and outfit well so if you're you're interested in in my antics you can follow me at, at randy hetrick h-e-t-r-i-c-k on you know all those social pl- all those social platforms that i you know that i was cautioning against uh-huh. um and uh and uh trx is at trx training or trxtraining.com is the site and outfit is at outfit training uh hq and uh outfit training.com so go take a look outfit by the way is is bringing everything we've done in trx for gyms around the, the the world and bringing them out in the form of a mobile training franchise out into the neighborhoods across america that's what uh that's what my next challenge is, is to, to spread the TRX love more broadly, not just to people who belong to gyms, but to people who don't. And oh, very uh, cool. so hopefully you'll see one of our vans rolling through your neighborhood soon. Well, I'm sure COVID has been a nice uh, tailwind for that business. It wasn't a bad tailwind, which right. is nice because I've had plenty of headwinds, James, <laughs> and I... And it's nice to catch a tailwind now and again. Well, that is that is awesome. And uh, like I said, thank you, Randy. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I I appreciate it. And and, and uh, best of luck. You're you're off to a great start, and I love your perspective. So uh, I'm going to become a regular listener.